Dolby Theater, Dorothy Chandler Pavilion, always you wrestle inside me. This is Talking Terry, the Terrence Malick Podcast. And I'm your host, Paul Beer. Hello. Hello. Um, I hope everyone is uh, enjoying um, January, as that's possible. Um, we are uh, about a week and a few days, maybe 10 days, let's call it 10 days, away from the Academy Awards, from which um, A Hidden Life was... Um, was shut out. Now, um, I'm going to talk later on uh, about a pair of pieces that were in uh, New York Magazine um, revolving around one about the making of A Hidden Life and uh, the other one interview with uh, James Newton Howard, who is the um, uh, composer who did the soundtrack, the beautiful soundtrack to um, A Hidden Life. Um, but first, you know what? I thought uh, I would... Talk about Terry's uh, Oscar uh, experiences and uh, how the Oscars have uh, viewed his movies or not viewed his movies. Um, if anyone is in Toronto on uh, Oscar night, which is February the 9th, uh, Sunday, February the 9th, I will be hosting as I often do uh, uh, at a comedy bar here uh, where I'll have uh, many of uh, the, the city's best comedians come up and provide commentary um, for the for the broadcast, um, which uh, is always fun and a slog. It is. <laughs> it's long. So we're going from 7 o'clock until... Um, uh, until it's over, which is usually around uh, eleven o'clock or, uh, or or even later. So yeah, come by Comedy Bar. Uh, there will be games, there will be prizes, etc., etc., etc. And um, but yes, Hidden Life not nominated this year. Terrence Malick has received himself three Oscar nominations um, over the years. Uh, Best director. Best um, screenplay for um, Thin Red Line, and then a best director uh, for Tree of Life. Uh, altogether, his movies have received 15 nominations, most of them uh, clustered around um, uh, uh Tree of Life, as well as Thin Red Line, um, and he has won one for, or his movies have won one, and that was for um, cinematography for Days of Heaven, for uh, uh, Nestor uh, Almendros. Uh, richly deserved, of course. Um, one would say that not winning for any other cinematography is curious. Uh, in case you're wondering... Uh, he lost that um, Best Director Oscar in uh, 1999 to Steven Spielberg for uh, another World War II movie, uh, Saving Private Ryan. Hey, you know what? If you're going to lose, let's lose to um, uh, Steven Spielberg, one of the best. 
Um, Thin Red Line lost to um, Shakespeare in Love, which uh, I think as history has shown us was a uh, <laughs> a, a tainted tainted victory. And um, it, let's I, let me just see what he lost in um, uh, nineteen ninety nine for the best screenplay. Um, maybe it's maybe it's Shakespeare in Love. Is that possible? Nineteen ninety nine best uh, adapted screenplay. See, there's a problem. I'm gonna cut this out. Is it? Gods and Monsters? Is that possible? Hold on. Hold on. I apologize. Yeah, that's right. He lost to Bill Condon uh, for uh, Gods and Monsters. Uh, that was a really good year, actually. So it's it's technically 1998, the the... The awards were handed out in 99, but it's from the 1998 year. So we have Gods and Monsters, which is a fine movie. But there's Out of Sight, Primary Colors, A Simple Plan, and The Thin Red Line. Not uh, not bad. Not bad. Um, However, uh, I like The Thin Red Line better than any of those movies. And in 2012, or for for the, the 2011 year... Uh, of course, um, Tree of Life did not win. Tree of Life lost to um, a little movie called The Artist. And um, <laughs> the best director to the guy who directed The Artist, um, who uh, I cannot name for the life of me. Um, I'm sorry, Michelle... Has an Africus, um, beating out such people as Alexander Payne, Martin Scorsese, Woody Allen, and Terrence Malick. So congratulations to that man, the director of uh, OSS 117 Cairo and OSS 117 Lost in Rio. Lost in Rio. Congratulations to Michelle Hazanaficus. Um, right. So, in other words, let's not feel uh, too bad about um, Malik not getting recognized uh, in his time. Um, although, uh, it would have been nice uh, for uh, uh, Hidden Life to have been recognized. Uh, at least in cinematography, at least in score, which now that I've, I've been listening to it a little bit more, the James Newton Howard score is just absolutely, absolutely beautiful. Um, and uh, I believe it was uh, – uh, he was also um, uh, nominated or in um, – uh, for Days of Heaven was nominated for costume design as well. Yes, best costume design as well as sound mixing and um, original score um, for Days of Heaven, the uh, Ennio Morricone, which lost to um, Midnight Express, and it was Giorgio Moroder who did the original score. So, hey, fair all fair, fair play there. Um, <laughs> I don't know why I need to uh, litigate these things that happened um, over uh, 40 years ago, but uh, look. 
Uh, all this to say is that the Oscars are bullshit. They don't know what they're talking about. And please come watch every second of it with me in um, in nineteen uh, in uh, on February ninth. Um, I should say that I believe the artist beat uh, Tree of Life. Um, you know, it would be great if I did some of this research before I started recording. Um, I believe it was the artist. Uh, people were having artist, uh, artist fever back then. Um, best cinematography, best director, best picture. Obviously, it lost those. Let's see who best cinematography lost to. Um, I was incorrect. It was not the artist, but rather Hugo. Robert Richardson for Hugo beating out Tree of Life. Hugo. All right. Well, all this to say, let's uh, let's keep it all in perspective, shall we? Um, now, on to the um, uh, two pieces that are in um, New York Magazine on Vulture uh, by a, a wonderful writer uh, whose name I hope I pronounced correctly, Bilge Ibiri, uh, who, uh, and my apologies if I'm not pronouncing that correctly, um, who has written about uh, Terrence Malick in the past, uh, in depth. Um, uh, props to, uh, props, I've never said that before in my life, uh, but kudos uh, to uh, uh, New York and Vulture for uh, running a lengthy making of piece on a movie that uh, not many people have seen. Um, uh, this is, it's called quail hunting down rabbit holes, how Terrence Malick blended, blended improv dance and history to create the expansive, a hidden life. And you know what, if you're listening to the Terrence Malick podcast, talking Terry, um, I absolutely can recommend, uh, this, this piece, uh, it, it goes into the, the, the workings, um, of shooting a, um, uh, a Malick, movie and uh, uh this will be familiar to uh, a lot of people who uh, keep up on these kind of things the sort of free flowing improvised uh kind of style of uh you know always rolling always trying to find moments in a kind of almost uh documentarian style but what's interesting is that we get uh some terminology here so uh I'll I'll just read you a read the opening graph graph is what they call it in the journalism world. Terrence Malick calls them rabbit holes. The term refers to scenes or images or quick exchanges that can be shot when the light's not right. He's not a fan of blue skies, says Scott Kirby, first assistant director on the filmmaker's latest historical drama, Hidden Life. If the sky is too blue and he can't quite get the image he's looking for, he'll say, let's jump over there and we'll do a small scene in the shade of the wall of that house. And then there's quail hunting. That's how production designer Sebastian uh, uh, Crawwinkle describes that term. Sometimes on set, or even on the way to set, if Terry sees the perfect light by accident, or if he sees a perfect moment, like the actor laying in the shadow under a tree and there's a fly in his nose, for example, that's what he calls quail hunting. It's a shy moment that he likes to capture. Um, close quote. So, yeah, the, what's interesting about this is that it, it gets into some terminology uh, that... Um, that Malik likes to use, uh, in addition to rabbit holes and quail hunting, there's also, <laughs> uh, Vermeer yourself, 
um, which, again, I will use this. Uh, this is a quoting from the article, which is how Malick inter- encourages his actors to place themselves in the right light during a scene. We only worked with natural light, so when you're shooting inside, we ourselves were in charge of knowing where the sunlight was coming in and how our faces work in it, recalls Valerie Patchner, who plays Franz's wife. It's not easy, she says, laughing. Normally you can just act, but now you have to think, play the light or vermeer yourself. So, uh, close quote. So it's interesting to, to, to realize that so much of what we perceive in these movies, even if we already knew this, is so deliberate. And the idea that Malik is shouting out, vermeer yourself, and uh, he's... Consciously going for a kind of like the, you know, the look of the Dutch masters, that kind of um, painterly um, uh, use of light on face and on surfaces, uh, and how challenging and and uh, uh, difficult that can be for 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 actors. Um, uh, Valerie Patchner says, you know, that uh, he's always being encouraged. Encouraging actors to keep moving at all times, always be in motion. And if you watch Malick's movies, especially later ones, moments of stillness are very rare. So there's almost always some movement. And as she says, um, coming from the stage, you're taught that all of your movements, any movement you make has to be motivated, has to be intentional. You know, there, there has to be some reason why you're, why you're moving. But that is not how things work in real life. In private moments, I don't know about you, I pace around. I do things I don't understand. I, I linger. I've always been that way. I've always, you know, <laughs> wandered around or, or been sort of lost in thought and, and moved without, you know, intention. That's why... When you see stillness on screen or on stage, it's more powerful. It's 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 because it's it's unnatural. It's I, this is what I think. So Malik trying to replicate that in life and always having the camera moving as well as as the cinematographer, who's also interviewed in this um, in this piece, uh, Jorg Winmer says. Um, there's almost no shots where the camera isn't moving. The camera isn't also like in a dance with the person. That's kind of a cliche to say, but where the, the camera isn't also sort of free floating and, and moving. And, and quote, if you watch it carefully, you'll see that there's almost no still frame in the whole movie. He says emotionally, it was very important that his camera moves, close quote. His movement was enhanced by extreme wide-angle camera lenses, which heighten and extend even the smallest of gestures. Such lenses distort the image while also making sure we see as much of this world as possible. The foreground seems unnaturally close, while the background feels impossibly distant. A person turning away from you on a rural path now looks like they're walking away in the midst of time. Within a single shot... Um, Winmer and Malik can achieve both great intimacy as well as a totalizing Olympian grandeur. Close quote. Um, again, all of what we see and what we experience is deliberate, even if it's done in kind of um, improvising, imp- improvisatory or uh, uh, documentary way. 
um, you know, the effect is the effect is intentional. Um, in the accompanying um, uh, interview with James Newton Howard, which is very, very interesting and very, very honest, he gives uh, the composer gives a very, very um, um, blunt um, uh, assessment of his previous behavior. So there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of dirt and gossip, <laughs> self-directed a lot of it about uh, working on such things as um, Pretty Woman and. Um, uh, the Batman films. He 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 worked with uh, Hans Zimmer uh, to do uh, Batman. Actually, Hans Zimmer, I believe, was nominated for best original score for uh, speaking of Oscars for um, um, uh, Thin Red Line. Um, but anyway, it's all extremely interesting. I, I would it's it goes all over the place. I, I would absolutely talk about M Night Shyamalan and the Village and that sort of thing. I would, so I would absolutely recommend it. However, he talks about working with Malik, and uh, this is the first question, and it's actually extremely interesting because it's going to get into something that I'm hope to talk about in a future podcast. Here's the question: How did you connect with Terrence Malik? We had actually begun work on a film probably eight or nine years ago that never happened, which is sort of a parallel story between Jerry Lee Lewis and Jerry Falwell. It sounds very odd, but it was a really cool, unusual script. It had a long title, something about the Chief of Sinners. Terry and I got together for a number of sessions over a period of three or four weeks, and then it just kind of went away. Terry went off to do The Tree of Life, and I never heard back from him again. I figured I must have written something he really didn't like, and it was enough to drive him away to go do another movie. Then when A Hidden Life came along, he gave me a call and asked if I'd be interested in working with him, and I certainly was. Like many people, I'm a big admirer. So apparently, that's a close quote. So apparently, Malik has been thinking about this, trying to work on this biography of Jerry Lee Lewis for a long time. And, and in fact, he wrote a draft of the script that eventually became Great Balls of Fire. That's the the, the Jerry Lee Lewis um, biopic. Uh, and according to this, Malik turned in a version that was way too depressing and strange for the producers. I would just absolutely love to <laughs> read about that. Um, uh, anyway, the the question was from what it from what you say, it sounds like he's still fascinated with the story of Jerry Lee Lewis, and it says. Um, uh, yes, he certainly was. I guess I can't really say what kind of value the screenplay would have had on a commercial level because it's somewhat obscure, but it talked a lot about this guy, Bishop T.D. T. Jakes. He's one of these really evangelical, dramatic, charismatic guys. We watched a lot of his sermons together. Terry would actually emulate him quite effectively and talk about how he wanted the whole thing to feel. The music I was writing was terribly wrong. Now that I've been immersed in Terry's sensibilities, I can see more clearly... Uh, why he went off and worked with someone else. So it's interesting because in, uh, that's a close quote, in um, A Hidden Life, you know, there's preachers uh, or priests, I guess, and then there are uh, demagogues like the mayor of the town, who actually is the actor who plays him, is interviewed in the other article, who are this sort of bombastic uh, fire and brimstone, uh, over-the-top, apocalyptic, Figures and obviously that's something that interests Malik quite a bit. Um, James Newton Howard goes on to talk about how the river um, is a major um, theme um, and motif in the music, and uh, and you can you can hear it in the music of this. This is the river that uh, that sort of binds the the town together, uh, this village and uh, the people who live on it, and how he wanted Terence. Malik wanted that uh, reflected 
in the um, in the music as well. Uh, so as I said, I can absolutely um, recommend this. We we get into um, uh, talking about the movie. It's complicated by Nancy Myers, uh, <laughs> Runaway Bride, uh, all sorts of things. So I would I would absolutely um, absolutely recommend it. Oh, here's something else interesting. He, uh, James Newton Howard, expresses some regret that he didn't get involved even earlier on this process because um, Malick uses, as he often does, um, pieces of uh, classical music. Uh, apparently he has a very deep knowledge of classical music and will plug it in. And uh, James Newton Howard seems a little bit peeved that uh, – not peeved, but a little bit uh, annoyed that he um, – Get, didn't get to do the whole score because by the time he got involved, there were parts that were already um, uh, uh, accompanying, uh, accompanied by existing pieces of classical music. Uh, so as a result, uh, he had to make sure that his um, style uh, could meld in with these, with you know, the, the handles of the world, nineteenth uh, century. Um, uh, type of music, so that that's very interesting. That um, he mentions that even though there's there's electronic, he uses electronic instruments um, for some 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 parts. You know, it has to be able to fit in with that because that's the existing um, sound or the existing um, uh, language, musical language that 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 was uh, going to be used in the movie. Uh, anyway, so I, I I cannot recommend these two pieces uh, enough. Um, uh, both of them are on uh, New York Magazine, and uh, yes, so we're we're slowly making our way through the um, Terrence Malick canon. Hopefully, um, we will get to uh, after a twenty-year uh, gap. We'll talk about uh, the the Thin Red Line and uh, sort of where that stands and how that. Um, uh, uh, stood as like a, a re reemerging of um of of Terrence Malick and I also want to talk about the what he was doing during those years the times in Paris the things that he was working on that that didn't come to be um the unproduced things uh, I'm hoping to get my hands on the script that he wrote for Dirty Harry it's it's out there <laughs> um I, I I can't imagine anything more interesting than what Terrence Malick's Take on Dirty Harry would be. Um, I'm gonna see if I can find this days of or the this, this Jerry Lee Lewis um, script. So um, stay tuned. Thank you for listening, uh, and uh, as always, stay devout, my friends. Stay devout. <laughs>